I'm Emily Schramm, the ultimate meathead hippie. Welcome to the show. I don't know why that intro is a little crackly, but anyway, I'm so happy you are here. I was just having a moment of gratitude. You know, this is something that's really important before I get into this amazing podcast with Stacey Sims, who we're going to talk about sports performance and women are, women are not small men and our menstrual cycles. Men, you should listen to this too. It is important to understand that women are not small men, but before I dig into that, I will say, you know, everyone talks about gratitude and how it can turn your day around and you need to write three things that you're grateful for. And sometimes you just do it because you're like, yes, let me get into that space. But I literally wrote this in one of my book chapters that it just feels so disconnected. Like in our head, we're like, be grateful, be grateful, be grateful. And then our body's like, oh, but there's so much to do. And I feel so, uh, today all of that aligned. And I felt all the gratitude that I've been just sometimes too busy to notice. And I just want to say how wonderful it is that this is my life, that I get to do this. And it's because you're listening. It's because you're here. It's all of those things. Without you guys here, there would not be any of this. And I just want to make sure I first express my gratitude for that. Also, I wrote a book and it's ready. So be sure to look at the link below. You can get it with or without audio. You never can get just audio. So both selections will include the actual book shipped to you by January 8th and it is called The Process and it's what I've been talking about the last few podcasts really about my (laughs) story of A to B and kind of this collection of poems but prose but longer rants and diagrams and flowcharts of how I have been able to go from where I used to be a nut job and also I still am a nut job so this is again there's no completion it's just I think it's going to really resonate and if you are a podcast listener I highly recommend getting it with the commentary because I'm going to dig into behind the scenes of where I was when that poem hit me or where I was when I wrote this and the sketches there's just so many fun things including the footers that I can't wait to share the story of so link below for that Uh, I did read the intro through my Facebook group. If you're not a part of my Facebook group, it is not just a, I don't know, some Facebook groups are just super (laughs) culty. No offense. Um, This is something that I'm really proud of is what this Facebook group is. Over 7,000 people. If you think you would be friends with me, we probably would. And that is these 7,000 people. And I felt brave enough with these people because that's how amazing they are to read the intro and I might have cried a little bit because this is like a huge deal for me to read poetry I have this weird thing that I'll I'll share in a lengthier way on the audio version but 10 years ago just remembering actually on a stage of real world literally terrified to read this poem that I got so drunk (laughs) And I don't even remember it. So it's like this full circle, like really this lap around the world of terrified, didn't know how to process poetry. Now I can be a little bit better at reading it. And you guys can join the Facebook group. Please do and listen to it. It's pinned. I do Facebook lives quite a bit, but they're always pinned to the top. So join the group and tell me what you think. 
Let's get to our podcast today. So Stacey Sims is just a badass. Women aren't studied as much as men because we are variable. We are variable because we have a thing called a menstrual cycle. This is an incredible tool for us to know if we're having it, if we're consistent with it, if we're not pregnant, (laughs) right? Like all these things that can be really great, but there's so much more to it than just that. There are moments, my favorite thing on Instagram, and I've posted this like three times. I'll probably post it again, but... I thought I was a weak-ass bitch, and then the next morning I had my period. And you're like, oh, thank God I'm not a weak-ass bitch. It's this funny little meme that I love. And it's so true. Like, we are in the gym or we're training or we're just feeling so damn moody and emotional. And if you're not tracking your cycle, that can be a little bit of a roller coaster. Or if you're irregular or if you maybe have been underfed and overtraining or stressed out and you have some HPA access, hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal dysfunction, your period is the first to tell you. And this is my, I talk about it in this podcast, losing my period, I never had, you know, men, I also want to say before you leave men, this is important for you guys to know as well. Training, if you're a coach, if you're a trainer, if you are a nutritionist, whatever you are in the field, if you don't understand that women are not just going to respond to intermittent fasting, keto, high fat diets, the same way that men do, we are going to keep the cycle of stressed out females that are not seeing results in the gym. And I talk about this so much with adrenals, and that's why I love it, because every time Stacy posts it, I'm like, hallelujah, and there's nothing better than getting Stacy's like emoji hands when I post something about adrenals and carbs. It's just my favorite, because I feel so legit, because this lady is legit. She just did a TED Talk, Women Are Not Small Men. It's also linked below. She is an incredible follow. Go follow her on Instagram, Dr. Stacy Sims. She also helped formulate Noon, who is one of my sponsors, one of their products for Noon Endurance. And this is what we talk about in the podcast. But in general, Noon is amazing for hydration. And there's definitely a science to if you're doing longer than 90 minutes of sprinting, running, not sprinting, you can't do that, uh, <laughs> running, cycling, etc., a race, for example, or training for a race, there is... Uh, quite the science to the formula that needs to happen to avoid GI stress, which we talk about. Anyway, Noon is great. They did 25% off all products for all listeners if you guys do it before February of 2020. I just think that is so rad because they are the coolest. So the code is MeatheadHippie25. Be sure that you go check them out at NoonLife.com, N-U-U-N. They're rad. You guys know I love them. They're my favorite electrolyte. So anyway, that's all I got for you. And uh, please enjoy the nerdiness, the meatheadness, the sciency part of what is Meathead Hippie with Stacy Sims. All right, Stacy, this is our second podcast together. I am so honored to talk to you again. So much has happened. I love what you just told me. You are now snatching, you say? Yeah. <laughs> I laugh because that was the question. What's the one thing you hate? Snatch. But when you hate something, you learn to like it, right? <laughs> right. Of course. Um, what is one thing I've learned? Oh, well, sitting still. I've gotten a little bit better at that since we last spoke. I think that's the first thing I think <laughs> of. <laughs> um, you, yeah. You are just like killing it. You are a researcher, a speaker. You are a total badass in the field of making sure that you, and you have coined this, women are not small men. And if you guys have not listened to our first podcast, I highly recommend it. I'll link it below. I will say the audio was a little bit less superb 
But at the same time, the quality of information Stacy has is just, it's just so great. So you're the author of Roar. You have been doing research on females' bodies, specifically female athletes. For how, how long have you, I mean, this has been, this is your life's work. Yeah. Yeah. So if I tell you the real number, then it tells you how old I am, right. but I'll, I'll say a few decades. <laughs> Boom. And I mean, I just love everything you're putting yeah. out there. And I just felt like it was time for another revival. Uh, a couple more questions that I had, a couple more topics that are really controversial. Things that you were just kind of saying, you know, let's just look at the data. Let's look at the research. So yeah. um, let's first, I just want to kind of celebrate your TED Talk. So first off, congrats on your TED Talk you just launched. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know what? That was one of the hardest things I've ever done mm. because it has to be so scripted and on point. But um, yeah, no, I'm pretty happy with it because uh, mm. it's it kind of gone a little bit viral, which is good. So more messages, the better. Yeah. And when you like, I'll definitely link it below, but like if you had one takeaway that, you know, your purpose of being on that stage, um, it's going to sound so much better coming from you than me trying to recap it. What would you really feel like your mission with that TED talk is? And what is that message that's landing for people? Uh, it's primarily awareness that women are different from men. And so we need to be uh, you know, treated differently from biomedical research all the way right down to someone training for their first 5K or entering a CrossFit class. Because women work hard for everything they do, and we don't need barriers that are in place just from poor science or myths um, to pull us back. So it was really just my experience through life and asking the questions of why and getting pushback. And then really pushing forward to say, this is not right. Mm. Um, so it's just about bringing awareness to that fact that women should speak up and we aren't small men. And there are things that we can do to maximize everything that we're doing from a training perspective, a nutrition perspective, and to really look at our own physiology instead of self-doubt. Mm. And we, I know, I mean, we share the sentiment of lift heavy and lift often as much as you can and knowing let's just start there of kind of you come from this you know you study athletes you work with a lot of endurance athletes running biking cycling uh, but ultimately really understanding what lifting can do for women if someone's brand new and hasn't really tapped into that world yet or really loves kind of the effect of cardio and you know how it sometimes takes a little bit of learning to see the results with lifting heavy before they become in love with it. Would What would you tell mm -hmm. a newbie that's looking to lift? How would a scientist approach this? Um, so when someone first comes into the fitness world, their whole primary goal is to get healthy, but also look good, right? So if we're talking about what is lifting going to do to you, it's going to increase the stimulus for your lean mass, so your muscle. And why do we want more muscle? It's not necessarily from an aesthetic point of view, but you're looking across the board for being able to pick up your kids and not, you know, cause an injury or carry your groceries up the stairs or, you know, just feeling strong and empowered so you're not getting low back pain or shoulder pain or neck pain from your posture at work. So when I'm talking to someone who's first getting into the lifting aspect, I'm talking, you know, you need to look at functional movement and technique, and then we add weight on, because if you get the functional movement and technique, you'll start to feel it before you see it. Mm. And the health benefits and across the board, it's like starting 
younger and you develop that habit and that technique in lifting um, and developing that lean mass, then when you start getting older, your body's still responding to exercise stress. Instead of getting the middle age spread that so many women find, especially when they are just doing cardio and they are losing bone density, if you lift heavy, then you're also stressing the bone to maximize bone mineral density. There's just so many different aspects that complement those people who love cardio. And trying to get that message across, right, it's, it's interesting, the pushback that you get. But I don't want to give up this, 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 this. Hmm. I'm like, not giving it up, it's modifying. So you can incorporate both of them. But with a newbie, it's like you find what their basic drive is and you work from there and, and skew it, or not really skew it, but present the data according to what their drive and passion is. Hmm. And then, and then they're hooked once they get those like first round yeah. of results. <laughs> it's yeah, like... I know. Exactly. <laughs> it's just so much more fun too. I mean, I think we can say it all we want. And I, I also love, you know, it's not necessarily the videos people are posting, right? Those are some of the most insane weights that we see. There's a lot of strong women and it's like, whoa, I can never do that. But you should be doing it in your own way, whatever your heaviest mm -hmm. weight, whether that's eight to 12 reps of 20 pound dumbbells or eight to 12 reps of a hundred pound bar. I mean, you finding that is so important. I love that. Um, and it's just all that you preach. So that's kind of how I first got yeah. gravitated to everything you did. And of course I loved your book, but I think what I really want to make sure we reiterate, we've talked about this on the first podcast, but with the topic. So <laughs> it's just there. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's kind of, the craze. And I think it's kind of faded out, but I also, it might just be the bubble I'm in. So um, I want to first talk about carbohydrates and then move into what happens for women when we look at things like intermittent fasting or fasting or lower calorie, uh, just to make sure that mm -hmm. from a researcher perspective, there is just like, we just have the data. And I think that it's very confusing for people. It is very frustrating to see one thing or see your husband do really well with something or see uh, a guy tell you to do it and you try it. And I just love that you are the voice kind of representing that it's okay to not see success on these. And also there's other reasons you're not seeing success on a low carb, a really low carb diet, or, uh, even intermittent mm -hmm. fasting. And it's just like, Oh my God, thank God. There's people talking about this that are, it's just so hard to find. Uh, and so I would love to just dig into that science a little bit. So where, what happens for women too low carb. And we, again, talked about this in our first podcast, if we are going to just dabble in it before we get into more. But when someone says, I'm going to go low carb, what to you is considered low, low carb or too low carb? Or does it depend on the type of exercise you are doing? So when I hear low carb, like all my radar senses go up, I'm like, what? No. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> we're talking about low carb versus very low carb. Um, so we know that the cutoff for women is around 120 grams per day and anything below that, we start to have issues with, um, kispeptin, um, and kispeptin is responsible for stimulating the gonadotrophin axis. So that means our sex hormones. When you drop too far below that 120, you really start getting sex hormone perturbation and most people are like, yeah, whatever. But what we know is if you don't get a period, that means you're not healthy, hmm. right? So we know that when you drop too far low, and women are way more sensitive with kisspeptin regulation than men, 
because women are, are by design supposed to reproduce. So when our sex hormones get perturbed or we get to a point where we're not bringing in enough carbohydrate to support brain function and endocrine function, the body's like, whoa, what's going on? Um, so you start to see some thyroid downregulation, resting metabolic rate goes down, your periods become irregular and or stop. And these are all signs and symptoms that there's a misstep in the food that's coming in versus whatever else you're doing. And it doesn't matter what kind of training you're doing. Like people who are lifting, they still need carbohydrate. And one of the things that really, like I kind of chuckle in my head about, and my husband and I laugh about this too, because he comes from a sports science background, is when people say, I don't need carbohydrate. And my, I'm like, you're bypassing basic physiology. People who are doing the ketotic diet or the really low carbohydrate diet, like I don't need carbohydrate. My body's learned to live without carbohydrate. But the basic step of physiology across the board is that you go through ATPCP, then you tap into stored glucose, and then you can get into some beta oxidation. You can't skip those steps. That's physiology. That's basic biology. So when people say, I don't need any carbohydrate, I keep going, yes, you do. Basic physiology, your body needs carbohydrate. No, no, I don't. Yes, you do. Mm. So I get in this argument sometimes. But when we talk about women in particular, when they're too low and they're trying to follow the ketogenic diet or they're trying to follow intermittent fasting, it is that cystatin sensitivity and too low carbohydrate, but then they also fall into a low energy state. And this is where it starts to get very interesting across the board um, because people don't realize that they don't have to you know, be in full low energy availability but they could be in a subclinical state where things aren't working quite so right for them. So they're following a diet that they think is supposed to be appropriate for their training, but overall they're not ingesting the right amount of carbohydrate or total calories. So they sit in a state where they're not able to budge body fat. They're not able to improve their lean mass or strength. They're downgrading their power. They're not sleeping well. And everybody's thought process goes, I'm not, I'm eating too much. I'm not training hard enough mm. or I have poor sleep, mm -hmm. but we know it's that subclinical state where your hormone perturbations are causing this. So if you were to eat more, then you would be able to get out of that state and be able to see greater success. Mm. Man. And how hard is that to teach people? <laughs> It's incredibly uh, difficult. I mean, and I get it, right? <clears throat> like, we, you know, we've, I don't know your history of food and exercise, but it was a mind F for me for a long time. Like, you yeah. know, it just takes yeah. so much, but it does, and it, I hate it. I hated that it took, you know, if it's kind of this commitment, like, you know what, what's the worst that can happen? Like, let me just try it and allow myself permission to de-stress. Because what you said about like this low energy state that we're in, it is so true. Like that is when our body is the cortisol, the stress, the hormone, everything is like frozen. And then people wonder why they're not seeing results. So it's, I, I just love everything. And I had never heard of kiss peptin before. Um, you were the first one oh. to introduce this to me. Oh, okay. Well, there know, you go. So thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And 120 grams of carbs, like, and trust me, I've done it all. I've done very low carb. I've done very high carb. It's just like the most reasonable number. Like everyone can hit hmm. that number very quickly and easily with just understanding 
okay, where do I need to add them in? And do I have a lot of vegetables? And then can I have a little bit of oatmeal? My, you know, my go-tos are gluten-free oatmeal and gluten-free bread. I, it makes me very happy. And it's clear, like when I yeah. feel that kind of satisfaction with the food I eat, my lifts are better and my body looks better. And that's like the perfect number for me is 125. Like it just, I nail it. And I just am so um, unsure why there's such a carb create like it's either one it's no carb or all the carbs and I just don't understand why people don't get that there's a middle yeah I mean like I sit back from the science perspective and I also look at how media has driven a lot of things and I think the no carb thing is the backlash from the 80s you know super high carbohydrate and so people are like well I don't want to be part of that whole obese situation that's come out of that super high carbs. So then they start seeing people who have lost weight on keto or they see stories about intermittent fasting and they don't really dig in a bit more. They get very swayed by individual stories instead of someone presenting, well, this is the actual data. And one of the things that irritates me is when there's a professional or someone in some sort of power position of education who uses their own personal stories to invoke a science idea. So you'll see a lot of people are following one particular person who's had success on keto. They might not have success, but they're not going to tell anybody because they're following that one person who did. Um, And then there's a, you know, there's a, a woman who has had her own issues with uh, reds and amenorrhea because she was following the ketogenic diet. She took a step away from her podcast and her, um, consultancy to fix herself and put more carbs in, but she doesn't deviate from telling her clients that they need to be doing this low carb um, Mm. diet. And Mm. I'm like, but it didn't work for you. Like, Mm. you know, this, you know, the science behind it, but still, and it's because her whole consultancy and her whole online persona has been because of this uh, low carb ketogenic style. So Mm. there's a lot of mistruths out there that just keep being perpetuated. And it's hard to, I mean, it's really hard to get through the quagmire stuff. It is. And it, I just think it's, it's like anything, right? You have an identity, you have your ego <laughs> to split the two yeah. is like, it, it just seems like the world is ending. But that, I mean, I will say I pr- promoted very low carb. And then I quickly changed when I realized people were like running to the bathroom and getting gut issues. And I'm like, no, oh my God, this is just because we got to figure this out very quickly. And I I think that it was hard at first, but I think it's also good to know that you always are evolving and learning. And then when Stacey Sims comes into your life, you just don't question, you just do it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Funny. uh, I love it. Uh. (laughs) Well, and I was interesting too. So can we dig into the, what you just said? No period equals not healthy, non-negotiable. Like when somebody has no period, um, especially I think after probably the age of 17, 18 years old, when things should be normal. And this was something that took me forever to, to balance. And it was because of my food choices, I think, and also my stress and my addiction to exercise. It was always my thing. And Mm -hmm. I love to move. Uh, there was, it was interesting. It took me a long time to get it back. Finally got it back, felt balanced, felt proud of it. You know, when you have a normal period, you just are like, yes, I'm, I'm normal. (laughs) Like This is so great. Yeah. But what was interesting, as soon as I did my last Ollie comp earlier this year, 
it was almost like my food, I increased my food, increased my calories, did all the macro changes I needed. But just by being in that environment again, I, I lost it for three months. And I thought that was so interesting because I was like, whoa, I thought I was good. And so I just jumped right back into something and I was like, okay, well, I did the comp. Now I need it. And then I took a lot of time off to try to get it back again. It was like a big eye opener of this used to be my new normal. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And I am constantly, well, I shouldn't say constantly amazed because now I'm not, but a few months ago, I was constantly amazed at how many women just assumed that when you don't have a period, then that meant you were ready for competition. Oh. And I was like, no, 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 no. That means that you're getting ready to go off the deep end. We need to look at this a bit more. Mm-hmm. And so we started, well, I started coining, you know, your period is an ergogenic aid. So for many reasons, one, it shows you you're healthy, but two, you can train around it to maximize your um your goal so when you have both your period and knowing that you're healthy and your endocrine system is working then you know that you can stretch your body at certain times during your cycle and back it down and it'll pay it forward in dividends Hmm. um so yeah the bottom line be healthy have a period be Hmm. healthy have a period (laughs) and it sometimes takes a long time i've had people six months a year a year and a half, like reintroducing <laughs> carbohydrates in the right yeah. way, calories in the right way. It just takes a lot of patience. But I think a lot of times people, it, it, and for me, I even noticed this, this within the three months it took to get it back. I'm like, I feel like I'm not doing enough. And then you start to understand mm. how much pressure we put on ourselves. And it's not just this, I love fitness and I love to work out and it makes me happy. It was the pressure of if I do not work out the way I am, that's my identity going away. And I had to mm. tell it to shut up because it was like, no, I, I'm not healthy. I shouldn't be waiting two and a half months for a period. And when I have it, it's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it was, yeah. So it, it was just such a good eye opener for me to have that talk over and over and over. It's not that you're not doing enough. You are just, you are literally resting your body in a way that you probably have never allowed yourself to. Yeah. Mm. And I mean, we get into that headspace, right? I mean, it's endemic because I mean, when you're looking at everything that people are doing on social media, and this is very apparent in a lot of our professional athletes, like they're comparing themselves all the time. So they think they're not doing enough. And then that voice sits in our head where, oh, if I'm not training like this today, then I'm not going to reach my goal in two weeks. Mm-hmm. And people never give them the okay to take a day off or take two days off or back it down for a month um, because they're so afraid that the end goal is not going to be attainable. Mm-hmm. But the body's very resilient and re- remembers things. So even if you take a month off, um, you're going to get back to your goal a lot faster than if you're trying to fight through that stress all the time. Mm. And they, I mean, and that's what's so interesting too is this less is more concept because stress does prevent us from actually seeing muscle definition. I mean, I think I did CrossFit, the most intense workouts of my life, you know, no lack of, no lack of training and did not see Mm -hmm. muscle definition until after I, I mean, really quit CrossFit. It was muscle definition in my shoulders, muscle definition in the right places. It wasn't just my traps. And I was like, what is this? And I I just was like, oh my God, it's not just the types of workouts I'm doing. It's understanding how under recovered and stressed out I was while I was doing those, even though I was really fit, you know, by standards of times and, and weight, it was like my body just this kind of mind 
flip of like, whoa, I can do less and see more. So I'd love to dig into yeah. that about the stress and how that ties into muscle definition and recovery. Yeah, for sure. Um, which is interesting because I just gave a second year lecture on this this morning about the interplay of exercise stress, the gut microbiome, and how um, it all comes back out to adaptation. So if we're thinking about stress and the, the basic physiological responses of stress, either exercise stress or life stress, and you have that elevation of cortisol, so your baseline um, levels of cortisol come up. So we know with that increased cortisol, there's also a stimulus to put on subcutaneous fat, so primarily belly fat. And for women, it's in the tricep and belly, sometimes hips and thighs, depends on genetic predisposition of that fat storage. And with that elevated cortisol um, also comes low-grade inflammation. So if we have low-grade inflammation, we're always going to have a little bit of that water retention and puffiness. And it's also going to make us predisposed to injury or uh, lack of mojo, so you're not going to be able to train as hard. And those two things as well will perturb the gut microbiome. So if you have low-grade inflammation, as well as elevated cortisol, then um, the, the bacteria that's in the lower colon, where most of the, when you think about the good gut stuff, that's where all the activity occurs. And so when you have that low-grade inflammation, the bacteria that's responsible for um, producing certain metabolites for exercise, um, enhancing mitochondria development, producing B vitamins, producing vitamin K, absorbing different nutrients from different foods, they all are kind of downregulated. They're a bit flat and tired. So when you're under a lot of stress, the bacteria that usually allows your body to adapt to exercise stress to stimulate muscle protein synthesis um, from an activation with the mTOR. All of those are downregulated, so you can't get the same adaptation. Mm. When you start taking away the stress and you start taking away the cortisol and you start taking away that low-grade inflammation, then you're actually allowing that, brut or that gut-brain axis to work properly, and then it will allow you to overcome other stressors and will enhance your exercise adaptation by the nature of the metabolites and the things that the bacteria does for your body. Mm. Oh, I love it so much because it's like, and even what we'll dig into about GI stress, especially for endurance athletes, and when you think of how you're bloating and you're cramping, and I think people just remove that type of distress, that gut dysfunction from your sense of your ability to show up in the world, right? So you have a limited amount mm -hmm. of stress you can handle. So if you are stressed systemically with things that you can't see, but you can somewhat feel running to the bathroom or gut kind of like the bubbles, whatever it might be, it allows you to not be as capable on the other side, right? It's like it, there's only so much stress we can handle make it as little as it can exactly. inside our body so we can adapt to the hard things we're about to do in the gym, in the race, or whatever it is that you're about to conquer. Mm -hmm. mm. Exactly. Mm, I yeah. love that. And then when the GI kind of thing with the stress, and this is where I originally found you was through Noon because you worked with Noon to create their Noon Endurance. And so figuring out, you know, kind of 
for an endurance athlete, a runner, a triathlete, a cyclist, that I would love to know kind of your thoughts of this, the appropriate carbohydrates where we're not crashing our blood sugar or causing GI distress and really what led you into this product. I don't know. I would love to just know it from you because I'm, I'm not an endurance athlete, full transparency. So yeah, um, no worries. Yeah. And I just know that I have a lot of runners and listeners that I would benefit from this. And so if you could help me under like, just share the reason behind this and understanding the differences between, you know, taking goose every 20 minutes versus understanding what is actually needed to perform well without crashing blood sugar. Yeah, so this is um, an interesting conversation with endurance athletes because they bought into a lot of uh, marketing hype in sports nutrition where you can't um, go an hour without any kind of fuel or you need liquid calories because that's the fastest absorption. But we know that there's a, a functional hydration metric that you need and you need to hydrate um, for many reasons. One, you know, blood circulation, uh, getting blood to and from the muscle, thermoregulation, keeping plasma up um, so you can maintain cognition, reaction time, all sorts of things. So when you're looking at something like the noon endurance line, it's a functional hydration drink and the carbohydrates in there are not a fueling source. They are there because we need a little bit of sugar and a little bit of sodium to work with our intestines to pull fluid across the intestines into our bloodstream. Mm. And when you're thinking about you add exercise stress where you have a whole bunch of blood that's being diverted from the gut to go to the working muscles, the gut becomes very hot and hypoxic. So you don't want to add something that's increasing the pressure in the gut, which is your primary sport nutrition product your Powerade, your Gatorade, your Goose, your Gels, your CarboPro, all those liquid calories, because the small intestines is where most of your fluid absorption takes place. And it's very sensitive to how much stuff is in there. It has a very small amount of, um, I guess, ability to withstand pressure. So we say it's around 200 milliosmoles. So plain water doesn't hydrate because it doesn't have enough stuff in it. And then when you start adding gels or goos or liquid calories, it has too much stuff in it. When you have too much stuff in it, it increases the pressure in the gut, causes water to come from other spaces in the body to dilute that pressure before your body can actually do something with it. Mm. And in the meanwhile, while all that stuff is in the gut trying to be diluted, you have increased what we call brush border um, time. So you have those sugars that are hanging out in the intestines and perturbing some of the gut bacteria, which is causing more fermentation and gas and distress. So when people are doing endurance activity and they're using these typical sport nutrition products, it is a common place for them to get GI distress and to be doing the, the porta potty shuffle and to finish the race feeling bloated and distended. Mm. And it's not for, um, I guess, the intensity of the race causing it, it's for the fact that they're taking in all these, um, you know, heavy carbohydrate-loaded products that just sit in the gut. Hmm. So when we talk about how much does someone need, that all depends on what kind of race they're doing hmm. or what kind of event they're doing. If you eat 
two hours before a training session and you're going for an hour or hour and a half run, most likely you're going to be fine. You're not going to hit the wall. You don't need anything. But if it's in more than two hours, then you're going to think about, well, maybe I need to take some glucose tablets or maybe some clip blocks or maybe even some figs for the last half an hour of that 90-minute run. Um, because you don't really need a, a shit ton of carbohydrate. You need to really focus on hydration first and then the fueling for what you're doing. And you can use your daily food as fuel for workouts. But when you get into the ultra stuff, like the half Ironman, Ironman ultra running, this is where you have to be very specific of what you're taking in according to environmental conditions, how well trained you are. Are you predisposed to GI distress? Women are more predisposed to it um, in the high hormone phase because they get a little bit more leaky gut from estrogen. So there's lots of considerations to take in. So when you're thinking about race um, fueling, people leave it and it becomes like the X factor. I'm not really sure how I'm going to be towards the end because, you know, I'm just going to use this particular product all the way through but your body changes, your needs change, and that pressure in the gut becomes really critical to dampen down. And it's so interesting, too, because like everything happens when digestion happens, usually in this rest space. So you have to have that perfect combination so that it isn't going to distress. I love that. And also, we talked about this a little bit, too, in our first podcast, actually a lot of it, but... I am obsessed with the specific gravity P-strips. <laughs> they're so, <laughs> they're so good because awesome. most people don't, like, when people say, are you hydrated, everyone's clueless. And after our talk, I, I, was, I was just like, this is amazing. I have a tangible strip. I even brought them to my wellness talks. I was like, nobody, you might think you drink a lot of water. I'm going to blow your mind. Like, this is, like, you, it was just so cool to have people read your book, tag me in those urine, <laughs> your, those urine strips, and then just share because it's something that we think we're hydrated and we're just not. And so I am just so grateful that yeah. there's ways that you can test it that's not just you know, the color of your pee or feeling like yeah. off, you know? Mm. Yeah. Or body weight changes, you know? So yeah. it's, yeah. So it's one of the best, like little inexpensive biohacking tools that you can get to just improve your well being, just by making sure that you're taking in enough fluids for your body. I'll, and I'll link all that info because we had a couple, uh, you sent us some, and you know, like visuals to sh compare like a healthy, like when you're actually hydrated and when you're not, which is so helpful. And I think I was just shocked. It took me probably a week of that before I realized what I needed to be hydrated. And it was not less, it wasn't more water. It was way more electrolytes because of the amount of stress that I think yeah. I have in my day-to-day -day life. Yeah, exactly. And don't, don't be afraid to salt your food. People mm. are like, oh, you know, it'll cause loading and stuff. There's no, your body needs sodium. So use it. I am. Ups I mean, I saw everything people are, I remember I just was in, I don't remember where, where I was traveling, but I have this tiny little salt shaker and people just got, their mind was blown. Like you carry that <sighs> around. I'm like, of course I do. This is my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> it's amazing. I might have to start doing that because <laughs> I'm always like looking for salt. And I'm like, Oh, there's no salt on the table. We sit down at a restaurant. I'm like, there's no salt on the table. Where's the salt? And people are like, know. we haven't even looked at the videos yet. I'm like, I don't care. I need some salt. <laughs> I know. It's um these cute little Redmond salt shakers. I have a bunch, so I, I will make sure I send you some. I had them for my retreat 
because I, I like put all my favorite oh, things cool. in it. So I'll send you a bunch of them. <laughs> um, awesome. Really, before we close out and like, I want to really dial in the, the period, hormones during the period, uh, how to work out around your period. So I know that if we started with day one, so the day one of our period and our cycle begins, I mean, this is where I really feel like a badass. I like all the way up to it. I don't feel like a badass, but day one, I'm feeling like a badass and I'm ready to move and mm-hmm. actually kind of actually it helps with any cramping, any weirdness. And so if somebody was like, I have no idea how to work around my cycle, how to work out around my cycle. I don't trust myself to skip a rest day because that's what I see a lot with clients. It's almost like if they skip a day, they're worried they're going to skip a week and they want to stay committed. They want to stay dialed in. So ultimately, this is kind of giving people permission to look at their cycle and understand which days to push and which which days to not because just like you said it can change the game for people especially those who are competitive but even people in everyday life so with day one how long is this like kind of on the day of your period don't use it as an excuse get to the gym how long does that last um so we talk about high and low hormone phases and we say a typical the you know, textbook is 28 days where you have two weeks of lowish hormone ovulation and then two weeks of increasing hormone before you bleed again. We know, though, from data that came out and published in Nature last month that most women sit between 35 and 40 days. So the best way to really figure out your cycle is to track it. And the reason I say that is because the low hormone phase is the one that will extend. The high hormone phase is the one that stays pretty much the same. Like two weeks. And the reason, yeah, it could be um, 10 days maybe on the short side. And it is because of the functionality of ovulation. So your body um, will have increasing estrogen and progesterone and it pushes up with ovulation and with ovulation that's when your body will naturally produce more estrogen and progesterone so knowing where you are in your cycle is imperative because in those low hormone phases this is where you can push hard so we'll say from day one to around day 14. so day one being onset of bleeding day 14 being ovulation and we know that um, you can hit it hard, recover well, you have more mojo, more concentration, um, technique, everything's a bit better. You have better heat tolerance. Your body can use carbohydrate better. And then when you hit ovulation, some women feel fantastic and bulletproof. <laughs> and you can use ovulation as like a PR day because estrogen in itself is very anabolic. But as progesterone starts to come up with estrogen, your body gets into more of a catabolic state or breakdown state because progesterone is very catabolic. So after ovulation, when estrogen and progesterone start to rise, this is where we change it to be a little bit more steady state. So not the high, high intensity, but working more aerobically, um, looking more for that eight to 10 rep instead of the one to six rep if you're doing uh, lifting blocks. And then about five to seven days before your period starts, when estrogen and progesterone are at their highest, this is when we turn more technique and efficiency oriented. So you're not taxing cardiovascular system that that much, but you're really trying to dial down technique. And this is 
ironically, when your body is the most, quote, tired, where your cognition's a bit off, um, your reaction time is a bit slower. But working on technique in this phase does a couple of things. One, it allows you to kind of deload from high de- all the high intensity. And two, when you nail technique, when your body's a little bit physiologically fatigued, when you get into the high or the low hormone phase, when your body isn't, you're nailing it. Mm-hmm. So you're improving everything across the board when you're looking at how do I train around the cycle. You work from the physiological metrics of hitting it hard for that adaptation when your hormones are low. And then you do a little bit of deloading through aerobic work before you get into the technique work so that when you get into the next low hormone phase, you're dialed in, you can hit it hard again. Helps prevent injury. It helps with that whole physiological adaptation aspect. And from a psychological metric, it's much better to know that when you're feeling a little bit flat and awful, it's a physiological reason. It's not because you didn't do something right. And you know that you're having a bit of a deload. So it's fun to go play in the gym Mm -hmm. without really having to hit intensities and metrics. And I love that so much because psychologically, like thinking of, I, you know, deload some in many people's case, whether, you know, the non-athletes who haven't experienced tapering or race day. And I think we're all athletes, but kind of competitive athlete, athlete persona of knowing, okay, I know I need a taper so I can perform better. If that's something people aren't familiar with, it's, it's so good to just teach it because whether they're doing Orange Theory Fitness or Platform Strength or a CrossFit class, there is no off days. When there's a gym right. that's kind of on the schedule of we have to keep our members happy and people are happy when they are sore the next day and working out really hard and feel like they walked away with a good workout. Deloading week, it's our slowest week at Platform Strength because we actually, we cut everything and it's like we have fun, we test, but we also know it's better for people like this is your week every six weeks to get out of the gym and enjoy. And then they come back so much stronger the the next week. And that took a lot, a lot of cycles for people to kind of dial in. And at first I was like, oh, this week is too slow. We need to add more things, but it just, it, it's not right. We cannot do strength training without appropriate adaption to the the athlete and deloading is something that needs to be incorporated into everything even if it looks different for some people it just is like appreciating that technique in a way so platform really has taught me like whoa this is necessary to get people to one yeah want to come back and stay excited you know there's people that and you see this probably more than anybody but we're all in and we're so stoked and excited and maybe it lasts for three months and then six months, but it's just full gas pedal the whole time. And if you incorporate this in the cycle that you are saying, how cool is that to realize just like those 120 grams of carbs, there's a middle way. We don't have to be complete, you know, go ape shit for six months and then take us three months to do it again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's really critical. And then, you know, when people are tied to a gym schedule, which so many people are, because platform sounds very unique and awesome. <laughs> um, it's taking that own ownership of your fitness and your body and saying, well, I'm going to go to Orange Theory, but I'm not going to try to get 500 million splat points. I'm just going to take it easy. Maybe I'm going to aim to be the person that's last on the screen instead of first. Hmm. You know, it's just 
really trying to use those metrics that usually show you're going hard enough to use those metrics to show that you're going easy enough. I really like that approach because, and that's kind of, you know, you can get into heart rate variability. Do you get into that very much for athletes? Um, I do with my male athletes, but for female athletes, not so much because there's a change in the phases and ovulation and estrogen progesterone, which changes resting heart rate. So in order to really look at heart rate variability, you have to have a good three to four months worth of solid just beginning data. And by then, it, the training metrics have changed so much. So we look at other metrics instead of heart rate variability. I love that. That's like such simple advice. We're not small men. So thank you. I didn't even know yeah. that. Oh, and for women yeah, to know, you, you know, for me, my kind of metrics of I'm recovering, obviously my period, my muscle definition mm-hmm. and my results, my sleep. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I just, mm-hmm. I love my sleep. Um what are, are there any ones that I'm missing to help people understand? Am I overtraining? Am I, you know, going a little too much? Do I need to give myself permission to slow down? I just feel like that's really hard. And so if I can nail that in any other tangible form that you see that might be helpful for someone to start to notice that they are recovering well or that their body is getting into a normal cycle. Yeah, appetite. Appetite mm-hmm. is another metric that we use because often training will uptick. And your appetite gets muted when you start training a little bit harder. Um, And then you get into an unintentional low energy state. So we really track appetite. Um, So we know that it's going to be a bit flat right after you finish training or if you're hot. But in general, if you lose your appetite for more than three or four days, then we know that you're still going too hard. We need to bring it back. Um, so that becomes a really important metric because it also allows people to become in tuned with what it means to be hungry and what it means to be full, which is primarily a lost art in today's society. It so is. I mean, it, it really is. It's kind of like I'm starving. And then that's really all we got. <laughs> yeah, uh, when exactly. we're too long. And it's true. I mean, when my, when my stress is high and, I mean, my appetite, I love being hungry. I love feeling like I'm in a rhythm and I can get hungry. But it's true. It's when stress is there. It's like, oh, I didn't even think about eating. And then it's it's this kind of cycle that we talked about of being too low carb or too low calorie, uh, which is so easy to do if you skip breakfast, how hard it is to kind of make up for that in ways that need to happen in the long run. And I know it happens, but that was always my thing of like, well, if I skip breakfast, I'm looking at my macros for lunch and dinner and I'm so under what I know I need. And if I go under longer than two days in a row, my body stops responding. It's just like instantly like, okay, we need to freeze everything. Everything's going to shit. Hold, hold the horse. So I think it's so good to know that it's like giving people permission to have breakfast is, is good. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's imperative. We know from quite a few years of research that women do much better in a fed state when they're facing exercise for adaptation. Um, and we also know that if you don't shut down that catabolic state after exercise and you stay in that breakdown state for a long period of time, even if you eat enough, your body still responds as if it's in a low energy state. So a lot of women who are like, I'm going to get up, I'm going to go training at 5.30 or 6 before I go to work, I might have 
uh, half a protein shake and then I'm full and I get too busy. I don't remember to eat. Then I'll have a big lunch or maybe a small lunch, depending. And then they eat a lot in the evening when they get home, even though it's healthy stuff and they're not necessarily putting on weight in that pattern. They're not adapting properly because they stay in that breakdown state for so long, so much time of the day that their body doesn't adapt to training. Hmm. My gosh, this is such good info. Well, I just love what you're doing and the work that you are just constantly putting out. Every post that you have is packed with information. It's just no bullshit. It's so needed. A female voice doing this for females, which I just, again, like you said, most men telling people uh, to do low carb or low calorie or intermittent fasting, I understand that it's good for all of us to guinea pig. And that's what, why I got to that 125 grams of carbs because I guinea pigged. But I I also think it's so good to know and be the voice of like, you're not a failure and you are not a lost cause just because something that a man told you didn't work. And so I just am so grateful for your, what you do. Oh, thank you. You'll you'll laugh at this last comment that I'll tell you. So yesterday um, we posted about you know diets and uh, the caspeptin and all that kind of stuff, and not to do intermittent fasting or fasting. And some guy posted, "Well, in my experience, you don't get any benefit for benefit for three days." And then a woman posted, "Do you have a menstrual cycle?" <laughs> she wrote back. Well, in my experience, it takes about three days and went on and on about his experience. And she wrote back, this is actually a a moot point because you don't have a menstrual cycle. This whole thing is about women. (laughs) It's like, thank you. I didn't have to answer. Someone else is. Fantastic. You're creating a a tribe of people. That's for sure. I will link for sure the TED Talk, um, our former podcast. The specific gravity strips, uh, all of the things that you guys awesome. can dig in. Dr. Stacy Sims on Instagram. You're wonderful. Thank you so much for coming back on Meathead Hippie. I always love talking to you, and I just, again, can't thank you enough for the work you're doing. Thanks for having me. It's always fun. <laughs>